Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Pastor Ron's and invite you, if you've got a copy of God's Word, turn in, in there to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we are continuing our sermon series on the Gospel of John. If you've been visiting with us here, you'll be following along with us. You'll note that chapter 13 marks the beginning of a five-chapter section that we call the Upper Room Discourse. As it stands now, it is the eve of Jesus' crucifixion in the story. Jesus and His disciples are now in a borrowed upper room in Jerusalem, and they're there to celebrate the Passover feast. Little did the disciples know that the Passover Lamb was before them. The Lamb of God, who in less than 24 hours would give His life for His people. And Jesus knows that they're not ready for what's about to happen. They don't know that He's going to be taken away, delivered up by one of their very own. They don't know that He's going to die on a Roman cross. And what's more, they don't know that He's going to rise again in triumph over sin and death. It's not that Jesus hadn't told them. It's just that they hadn't yet understood. The upper room discourse was to prepare them for what was to come. For Jesus and for them. It was a final time to remind them of who He was and why He had come. Of where He was going and who would come after He was gone. The last time to remind them of their calling as His followers as His witnesses. It is their calling as His followers that Jesus takes up first in chapter 13. And what He teaches them and what He teaches us is that a life of grace in Jesus is disruptive. It upends our self-confidence. It exposes our self-importance. It unravels our self-absorption. It reminds us that true blessing is found not in being middle class in spirit, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. But it is in being poor in spirit. Of seeing our utter dependence and need of Christ and to be washed and made new. And I can't think of a culture more in need of disruption than our own culture. How does a life of grace in Jesus disrupt us? Well, let's read our text to find out. Again, John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He now showed them the full extent of His love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, and that He had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. 
Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's stop there. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are more like Peter than we care to admit. We are so often clueless about what you are doing and yet so sure at times of what we think that you are doing. Would you open our eyes? Would you unstop our ears? Would you help us to hear from heaven this day that we might be disrupted by your grace forever? We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. I remember with great clarity one of the first times I ever experienced a disruption by God's grace. I had just moved to St. Louis as a 23-year-old from Jackson, Mississippi. Even though I had been a Christian for some 15 years, I had a very underdeveloped sense of God's grace. My understanding of God's grace really hadn't taken hold yet, and I would later attribute this underdeveloped sense of grace to an underdeveloped sense of need for that grace. I actually remember singing Amazing Grace one Sunday morning, wondering to myself, how is it that grace is so amazing? Oh, I knew that I had been saved by grace, and I knew that I would go to heaven only by God's grace. But I hadn't yet understood why I continually needed His grace. I hadn't realized the ongoing implications of that grace in my life. Yet God knew what I needed, and He faithfully provided that disruption through a sermon from a Presbyterian pastor. His text that morning was Romans 3. And when he read verses 10 through 12, I was dumbfounded. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Can I tell you what I actually heard him say when he read those verses? None is righteous. No, not Brett. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even Brett. As he read those verses, it felt like he was talking to me. Have you ever had that experience sitting here? Feeling like the pastor up here who is preaching is preaching directly to you as if he knows what's in your heart? Can I tell you a little secret? A little, little, um, little uh, insight here. We don't know what's going on in your heart. We really don't. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit does. And He often speaks to our place of need. And what I needed more than anything else was to be confronted by the depth of my sin. I needed to hear the truth that I was more sinful than I ever dared imagine. More than I had ever given myself credit for. 
I needed to hear that because it was the only way I could understand God's grace. It was the only way I could begin to understand that I was loved in Christ more than I had deserved or even dared hope. You see, this revelation of God's grace is extremely disrupting. It altered the way I viewed God. It radically altered the way I viewed myself. It changed how I viewed my source of identity, my relationships with others, my resources, even my mission and purpose in life. The gospel of God's grace began to change everything, and in some ways it's still changing things. Has God's grace done that in your life? Has it disrupted what you hold dear? Has it disrupted your reputation or your sense of accomplishment? Or maybe it's your comfort and your security that have been disrupted. Or maybe it's your self-righteousness and self-importance that have been disrupted. Make no mistake, God's grace is a disruptive force. It reorients our life and our loves so that they properly revolve around Christ and not ourselves. Jesus was forever disrupting the disciples' understanding of grace by the people that He spent time with, by the miracles that He performed, by the very words that He said. Jesus was the ultimate paradigm buster. And chapter 13 was no exception. I'm guessing that this disruption would have surely ranked among the top ten of all time great disruptions for the disciples. But so that we might put this disruption into context, John alerts us to several details in verse 1. First, the timing of this account. John tells us that it is just before the Passover feast. This annual feast marked Israel's deliverance from Egypt and their slavery. For the Jew, the Passover was a a spiritual and culture-shaping event. It had defined them as a people and God as their deliverer. The celebration was to be a continual reminder of all that God had done for them. And in some ways, it was to be a foreshadow of all that God would do in a very near time. The next detail John gives us is that Jesus knew that His hour had come. He knew that His hour of suffering and death were upon him. Jesus had always operated on the Father's time, never his own time, never the world's time. Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The time of Christ's birth and his death were known by the Father. They were all ordained to take place at just the right time. We've already seen that any attempt to hasten Jesus' death was always unsuccessful. Whether it was Herod at Jesus' birth or the Pharisees and the Sadducees at Jesus' adulthood, He was always delivered from an untimely death. Well, why is this time the right time? Well, the third detail begins to answer that question. John tells us that Jesus deeply loved His own who are in the world. And by that, He meant not just the disciples, but the church universal. That's you and that's me. The time was right for Him to show them the full extent of His love. And He would show that love during Passover by becoming the Passover Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. As the Passover Lamb of God, Jesus became the once and for all sacrifice on our behalf. 
He gave His life as a substitutionary atonement for our sin. Our guilt before God was forever satisfied for those who believe. But before the disciples can understand the message of the cross, they need a simpler example of Christ's love for them. And He will demonstrate that love through an unforgettable gesture of foot washing, an acted out parable of loyalty and humility. And then finally, the fourth detail also helps us answer the question, why was this time the right time? John notes that by this time, Satan had already entered or already put into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. It was only a matter of time before Judas would hand Jesus over to the authorities. Later on in the text, we read that Jesus is aware of Judas' plan. He knows what is to happen. And though he has the power to stop Judas, he doesn't. He even goes so far as to include Judas in the foot washing. Think about that for a moment. Jesus washes the very one whose feet would walk out that door into the night and betray him. One commentator asks, is Jesus' love for others so great that he will wash the feet of a known traitor? Does the full extent of his love go that far? The answer is a resounding yes. And so we come to the meal itself. It is here where we find this first disruption of grace. And what would that scene have looked like? Well, they would have all been reclining on mats around a low table. They would have rested their head on their left hand, so they would have used their right hand to eat. And their feet would have radiated outwards away from the table. Without a word, Jesus gets up from his reclined position and he makes his way toward the door. As he does, he takes his outer clothing off and wraps a towel around his waist. Jesus has now adopted the dress of a lowly servant. Incidentally, dressed that was looked down upon by both Jews and Gentiles alike. The disciples must have looked curiously at one another, wondering, what is Jesus going to do next? Without hesitation, he takes an empty basin by the door. He fills it with water. And then he takes that basin to the nearest disciple and begins to wash his feet. Can, can you imagine the look on his face and the others? What must have they have thought? After washing his feet and drying them off, he moved to the next one. And then to the next one. And then to the next one. John does not record any dialogue, perhaps because they were so dumbfounded. They were so perplexed. They were so disrupted. But why was Jesus washing their feet anyway? And why was it such a disruption? Well, the first question is fairly obvious, particularly if we lived in that time. The roads of Palestine were very dusty. Since people wore sandals or low shoes, they were constantly getting their feet dirty as they walked about. This made it necessary to wash their feet often. And this was always done when entering a house, especially one of the nicer upper rooms because they usually were carpeted. So the issue here is not that Jesus was washing their feet. The issue is that Jesus was washing their feet. You see, the social customs of the day dictated that a household servant performed their foot washing. Washing feet was a dirty business and was only for the lowliest of servants. Well, what happens if there is no servant, as there wasn't in this case? Well, it should have fallen to the first couple of disciples who arrived first. And yet they didn't. 
perform the foot washing. Their unwillingness to wash one another's feet reveals something that's in their heart. It reveals an underdeveloped sense of grace and their need for it. They hadn't yet understood what Jesus meant in Mark 10:45 that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. When Jesus arrives at Peter's feet, Peter says what everyone else is most likely thinking. Lord, are are you going to wash my feet? Peter knows that Jesus is the last person on earth that should be washing his feet. It was not something a rabbi did for his disciples. And in fact, there are no recorded instances in Jewish or Greco-Roman sources where a superior ever washed an inferior's feet. Peter knows his place And it's not at the end of a foot washing by Jesus. If anyone should wash Peter's feet, it should be Peter himself. He tells Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. In saying this, it's as if he's trying to protect Jesus from embarrassing himself any further. This is no way for a rabbi to conduct himself, Jesus. This is setting a terrible precedent. As noble as that might sound... I'm wondering if Peter wasn't really trying to protect himself. To protect himself from embarrassment, for failure to washing his brother's feet. I think Peter feels exposed and shamed by this beautiful act. Its beauty has diminished his glory. Jesus has acted righteously before him. Have you ever noticed that true righteousness is beautiful? It's a beautiful thing to behold. It's attractive. One of my favorite examples of that comes from John 8, where Jesus saves the woman caught in adultery. Those who caught her and exposed her uh, did so in the name of righteousness. Yet Jesus exposed their actions as unrighteous. The way that Jesus treated her, the way that He saved her, however, was righteous and beautiful. You know, when we think of righteousness, we often think of it in terms of moral purity and holiness, and we're right to do so. But that's not the only way to understand righteousness in the Bible. Bruce Walkie draws out another meaning of righteousness from the Proverbs that is equally true. We see righteousness there as the act of disadvantaging oneself for the good of another or the good of the community. It's absorbing the cost of something So that someone else doesn't have to pay the price. Now what does that sound like? To me it sounds like forgiveness, doesn't it? After all, what is it that we're doing when we forgive someone? We're absorbing the pain and the hurt someone has caused us in order to set them free from that burden. That's what Jesus is doing for the disciples. He is setting aside His own advantages as the Son of God to wash their feet. That's what he was doing for the woman caught in adultery. And that's what he's doing for you and for me on the cross. This is true righteousness and it is beautiful to behold. Is it any wonder why Peter responds the way that he does? But there's there's more at stake than just Peter's reputation here. Jesus says sharply to him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter had no idea how true this was. He failed to see that unless the Lamb of God washes away the dirt of a person's sin, 
has washed that person by his blood, he or she can have no part with Jesus. Jesus wasn't just talking about feet anymore. He was talking about his heart. As we receive this disruption of grace, Jesus means for us to recognize our utter need, our need to be washed and cleansed by the power of his blood. As he said, we can have no part in him unless we are are washed. This means that we must see ourselves rightly as a people in need, destitute and impoverished, dependent upon the grace that Christ so lovingly and freely gave. And yet this is not our nature. Listen to how this one writer describes the disruptive force of God's grace on our sinful nature. He writes, The gospel of the grace of God awakens an intense longing in human souls and an intense, an equally intense resentment because the truth that it reveals is not palatable or easy to swallow. There is a certain pride in people that causes them to give and give, but to come and accept a gift is another thing. I will give my life to martyrdom. I will dedicate my life to service. I will do anything, but do not humiliate me to the level of the most hell-deserving sinner and tell me that all I have to do is to accept the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus. Are you the kind of person that has a hard time accepting gifts? Do you feel compelled to give a gift when someone gives you a gift? Perhaps even a better gift than what they gave you? Do you have a hard time allowing someone to pay your debt? Do you look for opportunities to try and pay that debt back? If that describes you, then the gospel of grace comes to upend that compulsion and expose it as pride. It comes to wrap you in the confident embrace of the Savior. The Savior who dirtied Himself with your sin so that you could be made clean in His righteousness. The Savior who lovingly drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I eternally could drink the cup of God's fellowship. But there is yet another disruption that awaits the disciples. You see, grace is not only to be received, it's also to be given. After donning His outer garments again and returning to His own mat, Jesus asked the disciples in verse 12, Do you understand what I have done for you? Have you grasped the meaning of my washing your feet? He doesn't really wait for their answer and says in verses 13 to 15, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right to do so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, in saying this, Jesus does not mean that the disciples must now religiously wash each other's feet wherever they go. That's too narrow an interpretation. This new command is not about washing someone else's feet. It's about loving another in humility. It's about seeing others as more significant than ourselves. What Jesus is saying is this. The same attitude of humility and service I have shown you by washing your feet you should serve your brothers and sisters in Christ with as well. As we serve one another in this way, our fellowship is deepened and our testimony of Christ is more readily received and understood by the world. I have attended my fair share of weddings in 48 years, but nothing could have prepared me for what I witnessed at a wedding some 15 years ago. The couple getting married were 
two of the college students that Denise and I had ministered alongside of and and with at Greenville College in Illinois. Both had a, a winsome relationship with the Lord. And for their wedding service, they wanted something that would communicate not only their understanding of Christ's love for them, but their understanding of the kind of love that they are to have for each other. I had no idea what this would entail. As the service began, everything seemed to be quite normal. But then after they exchanged their vows and their rings, music began to play and they moved to the right side of the chancel. And and there at the chancel was a chair and a basin and a towel. And the bride sat down in the chair and the groom knelt down, took her shoe off, and then began to wash her feet and then put her shoe back on and then... They reversed, and the bride did the same thing for the groom. Uh, I honestly didn't know what to think. Uh, I had never seen anyone wash someone else's foot, and, and never in an intimate setting like this. I was uncomfortable. But I think more than that, I was disrupted. As I pondered the symbolism of what they were doing, I was certainly drawn to this text this morning. I was reminded of the love that brought Christ to do the same thing For the disciples, how he took on the role of a menial servant and washed their feet, and yet how he has taken on the role of Savior and washed our sins away forever. Jesus calls us to love one another like that as well, to see a need and to pour grace into that need. Where do you need to give grace in your relationships this morning? Where does the disruptive power of God's grace need to be felt? Is it with your spouse as you respond with forgiveness instead of judgment? Is it with your kids as you respond with gentleness instead of harshness? Is it with your employer or your employees as you respond with encouragement instead of disparagement? Or is it with a stranger as you respond with kindness instead of indifference? The disruptive nature of God's grace is such is that when you give it, It will not only change the recipient of that grace, it will also change you. It will change you so that you become more and more like the disciple Christ has called you and I to become. My prayer for all of us is that God would faithfully disrupt us by His grace. That He would let His grace make a triumphal entry into our heart. That we might recognize our ongoing need of that grace and praise Him for it that we might be reminded of what has been done for us and what He calls others or what He calls us to do for others in humility. Let's pray to that end. And Heavenly Father, we do ask not only that You might disrupt us by that grace, but that You would give us the grace to love our brothers and sisters well, not just those who are seated around us, not just those in our neighborhood, but throughout our city. Father, You have placed us here strategically to be a light into this city. And we know that that can only happen when the world sees the love that we have for one another. Would this church be so beautifully known for that type of righteous love for each other and for our city? We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.